Welcome to the Vintage Podcast. I'm Alex Clark, and this month we'll be celebrating International Women's Day by introducing you to four new female voices all about to publish their first novels. Hermione Eyre will be talking about her historical novel, Viper Wine. We'll also be joined by debut crime writer Eva Dolan, who discusses Long Way Home. Anna Whitworn will be in the studio to take us into the world of the boxer boys of the East End of London. But first, we'll hear from Lauren Owen, author of The Quick, a gothic blockbuster set in Victorian London, which Hilary Mantel has described as a sly and glittering addition to the literature of the macabre, and Kate Atkinson says is a feast of gothic storytelling that is impossible to resist. There were owls in the nursery when James was a boy. The room was papered in a pattern of winding branches amongst which great green parent owls perched in identical courting couples. Beneath each pair, a trio of green owlets huddled, their sharp beaks slightly ajar. They sat between big, thistling green flowers with tiny white blossoms, which made James think of mother-of-pearl buttons, the kind on Charlotte's Sunday dress. When he was alone in the nursery, James thought he could hear the owls chatter together softly like monkeys scratching and scratching their claws against the endless green branches. But when Charlotte was there, they were quiet, because she had told them that if they did not behave, she would get her box of watercolours and paint out their eyes. At night, James would hear the real owls screech outside and imagine them gliding through the dark. Sometimes there was the high, sudden cry of a fox and sometimes there was a noise from the house itself, a whispering, creaking sound, as if the walls were sighing. Often he would slip out of bed and down the corridor to Charlotte's room. Charlotte would always be sound asleep, face down on the pillow, though Mrs Rowley, the housekeeper, said it was unnatural and would lead to Charlotte being smothered to death one of these days. James would slip under the blankets and lie down topsy-turvy, with his head at the bottom of the bed, his feet near the top. Charlotte would sometimes murmur and kick half-heartedly against him, then fall asleep again, and James would do the same, his feet pressed against her back until they grew warm. They would lie all night like that, snug as the pair of pistols that lived in the blue-lined case in Father's study. When morning came... James liked to wake early, open Charlotte's bedroom window, and look down onto the grounds of Askew Hall, which went on for as far as he could see. There were wide lawns and gardens, edged by paths and stately, lovely old trees, oaks and horse chestnuts, and copper beeches and silver birches. Between the trees, there were two grassy mounds. These were the ice houses, which now held gardening tools and other odd things. At a distance, the gardens still had the illusion of being neat and well-tended, as they had been before James and Charlotte were born. Long ago, in the prosperous days, there had been people to look after things, gardeners and undergardeners, two gamekeepers and a carpenter, a fire engine, too, drawn by horses. Now there was only Griswold, strange and grim-faced and sixty-three, there had been a young Griswold once, the gardener's son, 
who had been expected to take over from his father and who instead went off to foreign parts and then died. Fighting the shanty, said Anne, the housemaid. James thought perhaps this was a sort of banshee. After his son went away, Griswold had been left alone to wage a vain and bitter war against the gardens. He shot the rabbits, but they came back, grazing the lawns at their leisure. The mighty rhododendron bushes flourished unchecked, and in the orchard the trees turned wild, and the apples were eaten by blackbirds. At the end of the hall gardens, the ground gave way to a sudden drop that felt like the edge of the world. Below was a ditch full of nettles, which was called a ha-ha. Beyond that there were wide, flat fields for miles, green and gold in the spring, red-brown earth in the winter. There were oak trees and black sheep grazing, and the ruins of a small Grecian temple, where long ago the ladies of the hall would sit to enjoy their books and needlework. Part of the roof had given way, and the pillars looked slightly crooked. It was not safe to sit there any more. Charlotte had heard Mrs. Rowley say that people in Askew village thought it was a scandal to leave the hall so neglected. Before now, the hall people had always done their part in the village. There had been treats for the Sunday school children. Sometimes the hall ladies would take baskets to the villagers who were poor or ill. More than that, there was any amount of work at the hall. Mouths to be fed, washing to be done, windows to be cleaned, horses to be stabled. It had been a fine place back in the old days. Now it was mostly shut up. Everyone wondered why Charlotte and James's father troubled himself to keep the house at all, since he did nothing with it. Charlotte thought that if Mother was still alive, then Father would have lived with them, at least some of the time, when he could be spared from his business, and the people in the village would have been friendlier. As things were, nobody much cared for James and her. Even Mrs. Rowley seemed to prefer them to be elsewhere, outside in the gardens, or at their lessons, or in the nursery, anywhere, as long as they were out of the way. When Father had left Charlotte and James at Askew after Mother's death, he had said that he would make all the proper arrangements. Then they did not hear from him for a long while. Eventually he wrote to tell Mrs. Rowley that he had engaged the governess. The letter went on to say that he would approach Mrs. Chickering, his aunt, who might be able to make a long visit to Askew to help Mrs. Rowley set things in order and make the place comfortable again. Once all this was done, perhaps he could be spared from business long enough to come back to Yorkshire himself and see them. At first, they were all of them. Charlotte and James, Mrs. Rowley and Anne, and Mrs. Scholes, the cook, in the habit of speaking as if Mrs. Chickering might arrive any day. But months went by, and she did not appear. It was her health, Mrs. Rowley said, sounding rather scornful. Mrs. Chickering never seemed strong enough to travel. A year passed, then another. Anne and Mrs. Scholes were the only servants at Askew, apart from Griswold, who scarcely counted. They were both up from York, and spent a great deal of time huddled in the kitchen for warmth, complaining of the remoteness of the house, the dreariness of the mists, and the loneliness of their situation. Sometimes there was a governess for Charlotte and James, but these ladies never stayed for very long. 
So Charlotte did her best. They would have to be brave, she told James, and she devised ordeals for them to perform. Walking down one of the long corridors alone after dark, or keeping one's head under the bathwater for a minute at a time, or, this was worst of all, shutting oneself in the priest hole in the library. The Quick is, a, I'd say it was a, a, a gothic story. It's uh, also an adventure featuring a um, mysterious gentleman's club called the Ugolius Club and a number of different characters who sort of come into um, conflict with the club in, in a number of different ways. It's set in late Victorian London and there's sort of a, a hopefully quite a bit of a detail of the, the period, how the, the mood of the city um, was at that time. The uh, main characters are um, James and Charlotte Norbury. They are uh, brother and sister. They um, grow up together in a, a quite a decrepit old uh, country house in Yorkshire. But as they grow up, they um, their lives diverge somewhat. Um, and then eventually James disappears and Charlotte sets off to London, which is where he was living. Um, she sets off to find him. And that's where the, uh, the, the rest of the, the plot stems from. Uh, a lot of the book is sort of inspired by um, the late Victorian and some earlier Victorian uh, novelists, which who I loved to read growing up. People like uh, Oscar Wilde, um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, Charlotte Bronte. I, I think there's sort of a, a, an element of, of their, their influence in the book. Probably also the, uh, the sort of sensation novels of the, uh, the 19th century, um, people like Wilkie Collins, people like that. So, um, yes, I, I think there's a, a blend of sort of 19th century and probably especially sort of 19th century Gothic authors in, in, in the quick I had a lot of fun researching. Actually, I sort of I had quite a, a good grounding in in the the time period from from studying the literature which I I did at university. But I spent uh, quite a while sort of researching online and also in the um, the the British Library, just things culture and history. It's it's a fascinating way to to find out about a century actually because there's a a, a real need to know rather than just a sort of more generalised interest. I'm currently working on a sequel to The Quick, actually. it's The the book was eventually going to progress into the um, 20th, 21st century. I got to the point where I realised that would probably be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words long and um, probably alienate readers quite a lot. So I, I ended in cutting it down the middle and I'm now sort of working on the, the remainder of the original material. I'm thrilled and excited that the um, the book is coming out in in the UK and US. It's been a dream of mine for a very long time to to uh, to publish a novel. So it's surreal but amazing to to have got to this point. That was Lauren Owen talking about the Quick, which will be published by Jonathan Cape in April. Also published by Kate this month is Hermione Eyre, who I'm joined by now. Hermione is a very prolific journalist who's interviewed everyone from Naomi Campbell to Carrie Mulligan and Gilbert and George and Grayson Perry. Her novel Viper Wine is a baroque and roll tale about the dramatic life and death of Van Dyke's muse, which splices a high society love story with authentic historical stories. Hermione, you're going to read for us now. This is Sir Ken Digby considering Van Dyke's portrait of him and his wife. The portrait was mightily well done, capturing such grace in his Venetia and some sort of courage in himself, he supposed. 
It was a world away from the flat, stiff likenesses of his forebears who always seemed propped against the dark. Instead, this was utterly of the moment. Their health was unsurpassed, they seemed to breathe, to sit comfortably in their chairs. Venetia's expression had a wisdom, a glowing forbearance to which people were much attracted. And yet, in truth, she was more tense than ever since Kenelm was come home from sea. She turned her head away from him like a sick heliotrope. Was the taste of her lips different? Was her climacteric come early? What was the unusual heat in her kiss and the coldness in her limbs? He needed the portrait to help him see her better. Every gent and lady who aspired to immortality or fashion or merely the epithet fine passed through the Blackfriars studio and all of them saw the Digby's portrait. They came up the water stairs and into the grand salon where the painting commanded the light from the river. Many of the studio visitors exclaimed to see the Digby's greeting their portrait and babbling as they took it in. But so it is when you are born a true beauty, sighed Mistress Daubeny. Age cannot wither her, said Belinda Finch peevishly. Do you think I should wear more blue? Venetia Stanley, is it? said the husband of the first. She's a one, they say, is altogether. He whistled and drew curves in the air. Bona roba. Both ladies nudged him with embarrassment as if the painting could hear. Oh, gee, said Andy Warhol. She looks so unhappy. It really suits her. It gives her an expensive aura. I bet she folds her money lengthways. I met a Rothschild who kept her money folded in a little scotch purse with a pom-pom. Kenelm frowned at this silver-haired changeling and asked him what his business was. Just teaching Van Dyke some tricks. I told him never to include a pimple in a painting because a pimple is a temporary distraction. I shan't stay long, though. I'm too insecure to talk to strangers. The editor of Vogue passed through, too, gazing at Venetia briefly, nodding dispassionate approval. This was perfect. Venetia would sell. She was a cover. Anything could have happened to her in life. Too much Botox, too much drink or a botched lip job... None of it showed once her image was up here, tweaked and manipulated, Van Dyke could always be counted upon. Any second-rate artist could create a generic beauty. The point was to make the beauty particular, ideally recognisable. When Edward Sackville saw the painting of Venetia, he genuflected. It became common for gentlemen Kenelm scarcely knew to say, ''Oh, sir, your wife is looking so well,'' or ''Your beautiful lady, what a fine pairing you make.'' which gave Kenelm an instant's confusion before he realised these strangers had seen their portrait and thus the familiarity they felt for him and his wife was an illusion, maintained by a trick of oil and brushwork as one illusion begets another. And like an abysm of mirrors, the illusions carried on so that it was declared at court that Venetia had never looked more gracious, never commanded such noble charm, the cleverness of the portrait was that Van Dyke had not overstated his case, but given her an aura of tired elegance, a mildly enervated oneness, and most clever of all, she looked very like the Queen, even though the Queen was ten years younger. Venetia's likeness went out into the world on billboards, on the big screen, displayed, retouched, elongated, a fantasy, a capriccio of perfection, and it barely mattered what her own self had become. The images were so much more powerful than she. Thank you so much, Hermione. I don't know where to 
start, really. <laughs> um, your book made me laugh so much when I... The, the idea of it, all these women at court in the 17th century drinking viper wine to make themselves more beautiful. Just tell me about the idea. <laughs> it's based on some paintings by Van Dyck which were my initial inspiration. I found them so mysterious. Who was this alchemist with his sunflower? And who was his wife who was painted on her deathbed by Van Dyck, aged only 32? Mm. And I looked into it a bit more and I heard that she'd been alleged to be drinking this beauty potion called Viper Wine. And I found a little more about it. And I found out that lots of those type of potions included opium and the idea of narcissism, self-regard, addiction to beauty felt very contemporary and yet very much of its period, the 17th century. And I really got um, got into it from there. That's the kind of, that, that's the thing, isn't it? Immediately you think, this is just like now. So th- <laughs> yes. obviously we do not think in the 21st century that we've invented ways of, of trying to look young and beautiful. Yeah. But it's amazing to think of all these women trying to extend their youth in exactly yeah. the same way as we yeah. do now, isn't it? Exactly. The past is so, so utterly different. And yet there's often just twinges where you feel a real recognition these women are covering their faces with pearl and pearl powder and egg white because a sort of gleaming whiteness was the look nothing like us and yet there's the same psychological dependency on these things there's the same idea that a woman's woman's power comes perhaps from her looks and yet even then that wasn't entirely true but it, it, it is it can overwhelm Uh, a character and I really was delving into that psychology really where you get your power from as a woman in in that period when obviously so many avenues aren't open to you an amplified version of today and perhaps makes us question what we're doing today when there are so many other ways for a woman to be powerful and yet we're still thinking about the same Mm. beauty treatments Mm. and the same snake oil basically and Probably in 400 years' time, what we're doing will seem just as barbaric as, as their very odd beauty practices. Hermione, of course, you've interviewed a lot of very beautiful, very glamorous uh, women. Uh, and now you've written this book. And I'm just wondering what, if anything, you felt you've sort of learned about what beauty is, the nature mm. of it, what we should mm. think about it, as it were. My interviews with some of these you know, most fated women... Naomi Campbell, Carrie Mulligan, um, they often are absolutely bewitching to behold, or Juliette Binoche, I mean, but they, they're often, I come away, not those particular ones, but with a sense that, that it doesn't make you happy. It it brings as many complications as, it, as, as, as pleasures, and it is um, a very perilous position to be in, to be fated as these women are for this this quality, which is not anything that they've done. But I've also interviewed a lot of artists, which helped with my portrayal of Van Dyke, who comes in as a character in this novel, and Howard Hodgkin and Grayson Perry and Mario Testino, talking to them about how they work and just seeing what mercurial characters they are has been very helpful for trying to create this very mysterious Van Dyke because so little is known about his life. I had to really use some imaginative um, sides of of my research and my day-to-day life. One of the really interesting things about the book is that Venetia isn't doing this for her husband, is she? He doesn't want her to do it. He loves her so much. (laughs) He thinks she's beautiful. He doesn't want her to take Viper wine. 
You're right. He loves her with that naivety that we sometimes recognise in you know in a in a in a lovely happy marriage where he he just doesn't notice when she's taking it. He doesn't. Uh, I mean, I don't want to give too too much of the book away. He's an alchemist, so in his laboratory, he's got access to all sorts of of strange chemicals. So when his wife dies, that you can imagine the public response is is very suspicious of Sir Kenelm, which is a- absolutely heartbreaking because he couldn't be more in love with her and goes into mourning, retires from the world, having been a, a very gay courtier and the heart of the court of Charles I. He retires to Gresham College wears black, grows a beard, very unfashionable at the time, has his only friend is a is a, a wolfhound who he he has with him at all times and he actually tries to work to, um, I mean, I've seen his notebooks, he really did this, he tries to work to restore crayfishes to life from their ashes because he believed this type of resurrection could happen. This is That's a man really destroyed by grief. Mm. So this is, yes, the terrible consequence of beauty possibly. One thing I, I must ask you, we described the book in the inter, in our introduction as, as Baroque and Roll and we've got a copy in front of us here, haven't we now? And it's got a portrait, it's got Van Dyke's portrait of, of Venetia which you've taken terrible there. liberties with and she <laughs> seems to be holding what? An iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, next to the viper which crawls across her beautiful silk gown painted by Van Dyck or his possibly his specialist costume painter the liberty that is taken with the cover is you know an amazing idea by the designer of the cover and they've given um, a slight sex pistols feel the yellow and um, slightly edgy text and the font rather in the novel it's there are no iPhones. It's slightly more subtle. No, it's about but, vibrations. But we've just listened to you describing a sort of <clears> scene, <throat> uh, a historical scene into which suddenly Andy Warhol wanders. So obviously the cover, you know, my point is that it, yes. it really reflects the yes. kind of uh, rather yeah. sort of, what can we say, kind of liberal attitude you've taken to writing about the past, the kind of yeah. match-up way that you've done it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was really having a lot of fun with the historical genre because the you know, there can be a slightly po-faced um, feeling that, oh, you know, accuracy must be maintained at all times. And I've got really into the accuracy. And I've done it, you know, I've spent weeks in the British Library. I've had the time of my life researching what was really happening. And I introduced just a few things to... to you know, a few strange elements of time travel which um, remind you that you're reading a book written now. I've actually embraced the idea that it's a historical novel written now about set in the past rather than trying to sort of airbrush that out as often happens, mm. I think, when people just write about the past. Well, it was huge fun. I'm kind of wishing you'd brought along some actual Viper wine with you, but not to worry. <laughs> we will um, we will do our best with what we have. Thank you so much, Hermione. My pleasure. Anna Whitworm's debut novel, Boxer Handsome, was published by Chateau earlier this year and is already one of 2014's hot debuts. Anna was selected by The Observer as one of a handful of young writers to look out for this year and described by The Evening Standard as an accomplished writer with a gift for description. Set in East London, this is gritty, bare-knuckle fiction that you won't be able to put down. And Anna's going to kick off our chat with a reading now. Teresa was still in her pyjamas and dressing gown when the door went. 
It was no shock to see her dad there, his back turned as he finished a phone call. She felt naked and strange in shorts and a T-shirt. She pulled her T-shirt down and waited for Denny to finish talking. He took his time to keep her waiting, to remind her that he was her dad. God being rude to anybody else, Teresa was shy and obedient for him. She waited her turn. When he did turn around, she felt tiny. You want to come in, Denny? She had never called him dad. It wasn't how it was done between them. He wore a blue pair of jeans and a black shirt done up to just below the collar. His loafers creaky new, cheap and polished. His wrists evenly weighed down in solid market gold. It was Sunday. He'd been to church. She could smell the incense and blood of Christ coming off him. He walked in and pulled her to him, his hands on her upper back, and tried to hug her. His aftershave, the smell of his hair grease, the stuffy sweat in every shirt he owned, the hard bristle on his face when he kissed her on the cheek. We need to talk. She shut the door behind them and felt the knots in her tummy grow harder and tighter than before, the sweat of fear on the back of her neck. Once inside, his face flushed with blood, his eyes wider and whiter and his breathing short and sore. Undoing the top button of his shirt, he grumbled about the heat in the flat. It's too fucking hot in here. I'll open a window. Teresa opened the window by the sink and let the breeze cool the room. She walked back to him. Tea? Denny shook his head. I'm only stopping by. I've got the kettle on. Denny tried to smile at his daughter. She was being mindful of her manners. There's a good man out there carrying a nasty-looking scar. He kept his hand firm on her little bony shoulder, his palm burning right through her body, her father's right hand holding her still. She tried not to look frightened. Looking frightened never got Teresa anywhere. You seem to be in the middle of it all, girl. Denny's voice wasn't Irish, but it wasn't English, wasn't East End London and wasn't rambling brogue. It was Denny, lilting and low and stripped of all those ways you were taught to speak. He barked and scratched his sounds out. He nearly ruined Connor's chance of meeting that braggart in the ring. He took his hand away. Teresa desperately wanted another cigarette. She knew the two of them met up to fight. Everyone came to watch them. They were the best local boys in the area. She moved back out of Denny's hold and walked to the kitchen. He was minding his own before Connor went for him. Denny opened and shut his dry mouth and ran his tongue around his lips. His heavy, droning voice got quieter, the kitchen filled with menace. Now listen. Teresa held herself still. I didn't come here to care too much about your story and I won't be mincing my words. He was minding Connor's business, ripping your clothes off by the canal and you let him like you haven't been brought up to know better. You're lucky there are people here looking out for you. She looked back at Denny, her eyes hard. She lit a cigarette. You never fuck someone for the world to see, next to where I live. Teresa blew out her smoke. Denny cocked his head. You behave like a fucking daughter, and you stick to the side that feeds you. Denny sneered at his daughter. I wish there were still laundries to send girls like you to. He came towards her, rolling up his sleeve over his elbow, his fat, hairy arm rising above her. Teresa didn't move. She'd seen how Denny worked on fear. He loved it. She'd seen him do it to her mum, how Daphne's fear of him only made him bigger. Instead, Teresa stood and waited, smoking as if the cigarette smoke curling around her kept her safe. She let the ash fall onto the kitchen floor and looked up to her dad as he stepped close to her. Trying not to blink in front of him, so frightened that she needed to shit, 
She could smell him again, the stuffiness, the hair, his hot skin from his temper. Thanks so much, Anna. That comes quite near the beginning of the book, doesn't it? Where you're sort of setting up these three principles, this Mm -hmm. girl, Teresa, and the two boxers. Just tell us a little bit about them and their stories. Well, when we meet Teresa at this point, she's been instrumental in a big fight at the the first chapter of the book between Bobby and Connor. She's Connor's girlfriend, but she's had a fling with Bobby and they keep sort of seeing each other by the canal. And they have a huge bust up by the canal, which is very violent and bloody. And Teresa's dad, who kind of runs the big travelling community, is a big patriarch, comes along and warns Teresa in his, in his delicate way to stay away from Bobby, the hero of the book. It is, as you say, it's told sort of from the point of view of Bobby, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Bobby's the, the, the boxer yeah. who we've sort of... He's boxer handsome. Yeah. And he's the person who we're really... We're, we're kind of on his side, aren't we? Yes. Just tell us a bit about him. He's complicated. I wanted to, I wanted to give the reader a character that wasn't easy to like and came with all sorts of problems and is hugely violent and very angry and filled with a kind of London rage that I felt was really everywhere around the city. I, you know, you look around London, there are angry young men everywhere, especially now. And I felt they'd been slightly disenfranchised and I wanted to give them a bit of a voice in fiction. And that's where Bobby came from, really. And it's very rooted, isn't it, in the East End? This is an East London book. Yeah, very much. And that came from my granddad, who was who did some featherweight boxing at the his local boys' club, Crown and Manor. And I was born in West London, but my mum was born in Clapton and my granddad was born in, around Hoxton area. And I think I wanted to kind of write back, kind of write a return to my roots somehow. And I was fascinated in the East London history and immigrant boxes and the Jewish-Irish thing. So that's how Bobby was born, really. Well, it's interesting you say, you know, you're, you say you're sort of going back over your own history. But also if you look at that part of London, I mean, we have listeners from all sorts of places... But the part of East London that you're talking about, of course, is super trendy, super gentrified, super expensive mm-hmm. now in places. Mm-hmm. So you're also sort of reclaiming the history or telling a, a kind of hidden or disappearing history of a part of London, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. And it's a kind of disappearing, faded kind of masculinity too. So it's an old London and an old kind of machismo and both the kind of been rendered obsolete and don't really... You have to look hard to find, I think, this kind of community it's also all the characters have different sort of backgrounds in terms of their kind of immigrant history there's mm-hmm. there's uh well bobby himself is of a, of a sort of mixed heritage isn't he yep he's jewish and irish which was a real nod to 19th century boxing history and jewish boxers were very instrumental in shaping the way the sport developed and there was someone I've read a wonderful book by Cassia Body called The Culture of Boxing, and she's to. She, there was a wonderful chapter about how the Irish immigrant boxers in America rejected the new Jews that came over because they didn't have Irish hearts, and there was all this kind of tribal folklore stuff that kept happening in boxing. And I wanted to put a bit of that in the book as well, that sort of myth and tribal conflict all the time. How did you begin to work out how to write about conflict? I mean, as in actual fighting, you know. The physical, visceral stuff. Um, the kind of stuff, actually, let's be honest about it, that women aren't supposed to write about. Right, yeah. And it's funny because actually this book was originally meant to be a love story. I wanted to write a really good love story that went nasty. And Bobby was a secondary character and he just grew and got massive and, and felt... And I, I say 
this about some characters. Teresa did it a bit too. You become so fond of them as a writer and they start doing things for you and the bloody visceral stuff belonged to Bobby that it became... It was just quite not easy to write because the fighting is wordless. So you're doing... And language and... Language and action don't really go together. You can't, you've got to find a way of creating a violence for the book that isn't actually... Otherwise, you're right. I mean, especially with the boxing. Otherwise, you're kind of becoming a boxing journalist, and that's not what I am. I'm not doing a kind of technical analysis of boxing. It was more an impression of violence. So mm. it was very difficult. The hardest scenes in the book to write were definitely the, the fighting scenes because they all had to have a range. They couldn't mimic each other. They all had to do a different thing and have a purpose. I'm going to finish just by asking you the kind of thing that all people who've written their first novel don't want to hear. <laughs> but we want to know, are you working on a second? Yeah, I am. I I fell in love with Teresa when I wrote this, in the same way that I fell in love with Bobby. And I really want her to have her own narrative, her own tale told, because she's a really interesting character. So um, we might be looking at a kind of East End series. She might leave the East End, actually, and I think that's the thing. I want her to survive, and I want her to get out, and I want her to be a bit of a hero for herself, um, a heroine. She's kind of she's got lots of life in her in this book, and I always say that she she and Bobby are too big for the same novel. So one of them had to take kind of had to be the showman, but she, I think she's got stuff going on that I'm interested in. So we look forward to it. Many thank thanks you. for coming in. Thank to see you us for today. having me. <laughs> Being shortlisted for the Crime Writers Association dagger for unpublished authors when you're just a teenager promises great things to come. And boy, has Eva Dolan delivered. Published at the start of this year to great acclaim, Long Way Home is her debut novel and the start of a major new crime series featuring a detective duo from the Peterborough Hate Crimes Unit. The Sunday Times remarked that the modern scourge of people trafficking is brilliantly described in this ingenious and compassionate novel. We're going to start off with a reading. Zhigich got out of the car and buttoned his parker up to his chin, watching a woman retreat from the upstairs window of the house opposite, curtains a few inches too short swinging back into place. The house looked cheaply renovated and badly maintained. Mismatched plastic windows packed out with bright yellow expanding foam, a front door showing the painted-over scars of old locks busted and replaced. The neighbours were more house-proud, neatly mown front lawn and primped hanging baskets on the porch. They had a St George's cross tacked up across the living room window and somehow he didn't think it was there in readiness for the weekend's rugby. There were a few English in the area still and the ones Zhigich had run into operated under a siege mentality. Wouldn't be forced out, as if anyone was trying to. They were the ones who squinted at his card, asked... Zygik? Zygik? Is that how you say it? Then, when he corrected them, Zygic, they got it wrong again. The ones who always wanted to know where he was from. No, really from. Despite the Peterborough accent, bird with a fen edge he couldn't quite shift, they thought he was just off the bus, taking some hard-working English copper's job. They weren't entirely wrong. The ACC needed a foreign name to head up hate crimes and he wanted it attached to a third-generation body, someone just different enough. Zhigic crossed Highbury Street between the cars, clocked an out-of-date tax disc on one, an empty vodka bottle on the dashboard of another. 
At the far end of the road, a transporter van was unloading the night shift, another group waiting on the curb to get in. People were coming out of the houses, togged up against the early morning chill in quilted coats and woolen hats, heading down towards the collection points strung along Lincoln Road. A couple of women with supermarket uniforms under their jackets grinned at Zhigic as he stepped aside for them on the narrow path, and he caught a fluttering of Latvian, recognised the shape of the words but couldn't translate them. They had walked past number 63 without even glancing down the driveway. Despite the police tape and the WPC standing guard with her hands tucked into the small of her back, they hadn't let their curiosity get the better of them. Zhigic wondered where they learned that. What had been bad enough to override the hard-wired human instinct to look where you shouldn't? Anywhere else, the neighbours would be out in numbers, but the group at the edge of the cordon was only four strong, an elderly couple in grubby anoraks and a young woman holding a squirmy toddler to her chest. None of them spoke. They hardly moved, only looked along the cracked tarmac driveway towards a pair of high wooden gates which stood open a few inches, showing a sliver of metallic paintwork and the back window of an Astra van. The house was 1930s, a pebble-dashed detached painted white, but not recently, with wooden windows done in the same expensively dingy green Anna had insisted they buy for their front door at home. It was still in the garage, Zhigic told her you couldn't put it on while there was a risk of frost. He was hoping she'd come to her senses and let him paint it red. Morning, sir. The WPC lifted the perimeter tape for him, and Zhigic ducked under. Any trouble? No, sir. Most of them are at work by now, I reckon. How's the doc been? You just missed him. Zhigic went through the gates into number 63's back garden the smell of smoke hitting him full force, an unmistakable meatiness to it which snagged at the back of his throat. Flecks of black swirled in the air and he tried not to think what they had been part of as he picked one from his bottom lip. The charred hulk of the shed was tucked into the far corner of the garden against a run of old red brick wall. It was a standard-issue 8 by 12 larch lap with a felt roof collapsed in on itself and a stable door smashed off its hinges. Inside, Zhigic saw a twist of blackened metal and springs, which could only have been a sun lounger, and a body caged by it, slumped in the middle. Only the head was clearly visible in a shaft of weak morning sun, scorched skin, cracked and seamed red. D.S. Ferreira was standing nearby with the fire officer, hands shoved into the pockets of her duffel coat. What have we got, Mal? One lightly toasted corpse, Ferreira said. Looks like he was in a sleeping bag. The fire officer nodded. I've dust down worse places. Me too, Ferreira turned away. Expert witness says we've got accelerant. Smells like kerosene, the fire officer said, wiping his face with the front of his T-shirt. Neither were very clean. Reckon it might have been stored in the shed, but you take a shifty in there, Inspector. He stepped back, and Zhigic looked beyond the remains of the sun lounger and the body, which was bigger than he first thought. Definitely a man, 
and a well-built one at that, saw a few empty bottles next to a melted crate and a galvanised metal bucket which was somehow perfectly untouched. Other than that, the shed was empty. Wish yours was that tidy, hey? The fire officer said. Might have been an accident. He'd been putting some drink away by the look of him. And it might have been spontaneous combustion, but there was a padlock on here heavy enough to hold down an elephant. Inside? Outside. Where is it now? Still on the door, the fire officer said. Knew you'd want your people in here. The mobile on his belt sounded a plunging tone, and he was already moving as he checked it. I'll get my report over to you before five, Inspector. Mel, a pleasure as always. He jogged off towards the gates. God, he fancies himself, Ferreira said. What is it with firemen? I honestly couldn't tell you. Man must be fifty. Mel? Just trying to lighten the mood. The shed roof gave an ominous crack, and she stepped away smartly, kicking up water onto Zhigic's jeans. Sorry. Eva joins me now. Welcome, Eva. Um, you're going to tell me about your debut novel, Long Way Home, um, your first foray into, into fiction writing, and you've chosen crime. Just tell me about how the book started. The book uh, started from a conversation I overheard in a pub, which I just kind of wandered into, as I generally do with pubs, and two men were discussing the practices of a local gangmaster, who they both knew in huge admiration for this terrible man and his business practices and how he exploited his workers and how if any of them got out of line it would just be, you know, a beating. And they, they treated this how somebody who worked in an office would just treat a formal warning. It was just, yes, this is what you do to keep the people in line. And I sat there listening and I thought, this is just surreal. I can't actually believe that this goes on in a civilised Western country. You were just sitting there kind I, of I eavesdropping, was just sitting there eavesdropping. Yeah, because you know, I love being a writer because you, know, you now have a reason to eavesdrop on people and you can justify it afterwards rather than just being nosy, which is what I was doing then and there. And so they, they went into the details a little bit, but not an awful lot. But it was just enough that it stuck with me and I thought, this is really interesting. I hadn't read any other books about it. So I just put down the book I was writing and just forgot about that. And I started writing about um, the world of migrant workers and the exploitation and the crime that magnetises to that world because it's it's quite unregulated. Everyone's in quite a precarious position. And um, I just thought, oh, this is a really good, this is mm. a really good story. And when I was a little way into the book, some news reports started coming through about um, slave labour in Britain and I thought I've got to do this really quickly so I just, I went completely focused on it and um, the more I began exploring that world the more I realised that these two guys' conversation was the tip of the iceberg and they were actually very much at the soft end of what happens to people and for, uh, for a lot of migrant workers it is significantly worse and significantly more dangerous and the people they end up working with working for are just they're just the worst kind of criminals so you decided to make this into into a thriller yeah. and then of course you need your detective mm. or in this case detectives yeah so how did how did they come about well once I knew I was going to be writing about immigration I really liked the idea of having um characters 
that had an immigrant background. So Zigic is a third generation of uh, Serbian extraction. And even though he's got the foreign surname, and realistically, I think, as a character, the foreign surname was basically just something that helped him get girls because he was exotic. <laughs> but he, so he doesn't really have the migrant experience, but he, he thinks he does, really. So he's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. But Ferreira is first generation. She was born in Portugal and came uh, to live in England as a child because her parents were economic migrants in the late 90s. And she has got a ferocious chip on her shoulder about it because she's 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 grown up in a caravan on a farm as the child of exploited migrant workers so it's got a real bee in her bonnet about the subject so between them they, there's a balance between them because Igich is a bit more steady and a bit more analytical and Ferreira's fiery and instinctive and probably he probably should rein her in I probably should rein <laughs> her but she's just so much fun to write because she will just do anything, and as a writer, that's really, that's really satisfying to have a to have a character that will just behave really badly. So this started with a conversation in mm, the pub, yeah. But then you know, a conversation in a pub overheard does yeah. not a whole book make. So no. how did you go about sort of researching the rest of it, immersing yeah. yourself? Yeah. Did you make contact with um, the police forces? Did you make contact with migrant workers themselves? I. Actually, I didn't. Um, I didn't deal with the police at all. I went to the other side mm. because um, I thought that would be more interesting. And, and honestly, because I had easier access to them, I knew um, uh, I knew a legitimate, highly respectable gangmaster through my family who was very. I was going to say he was very generous, but I think he was probably very generous because he didn't know I was going to write a book about him. <laughs> um, so he does he know now. Okay. No, he oh, doesn't. So, so he, no, he, he has, he has no idea. He isn't actually in the book, though, so he shouldn't be upset. And mm. yeah, but um, so he was um, very open about the way his business runs and the kind of people he employs. But he was legitimate, so that was quite limited use for crime. But because I needed to know what the people at the thuggy, nasty end of the business were like, mm. and for that, I went and spoke to um, migrant workers I knew through uh, mutual acquaintances. And the stories they told were quite horrific. I mean, they'd, you know, they'd work for six or eight weeks and then all of a sudden they wouldn't get paid and they'd get put out of the house, they were renting. Beatings were usual, threats to kill were usual. It's it's just a, a horribly precarious world for them if they fall in with the wrong gangmaster because even though it's regulated, the regulation's very sketchy. And, I mean, these people leave behind everything that they've had at home, their support networks, their families, their friends a lot of the time. And they're just coming over here to find work and sometimes they just fall into the clutches of the wrong people. So a lot of what's in the book came from there. And I did other little things, because like, I don't actually live in Peterborough. I went there and um, had a look around. That's uh, where the book's set, Where the book's set, yeah. Mm. Went to uh, the New England area where the majority of the migrant um, workers live. And it's really bustling and there's really, you know, lovely cafes and these great um, kind of grocery shops and stuff um, just to kind of get a get a feel. But, I mean, that was really just window dressing, but I needed I needed to know it. But I think the one of the most um, striking moments of research for me was when I got in touch with a, a Latin agent who actually showed me around the places they actually let to migrant workers, and these are kind of 80 to £100 pounds a week. And it's just basically a small partitioned room with a mattress on the floor and a chair and some shelves to put your clothes on and 
I mean, it's really expensive for the area, um, but their employers put them in these houses. The employers often own the houses, and these poor buggers are just kind of exploited all the way round. Mm, mm. So, mm. did you feel there was a, obviously people turn sometimes to mm. crime novels, to thrillers, for entertainment, for the yeah. suspense, for drama? Did you feel, as you were writing also, that this was an opportunity to show people something they might not think is actually happening in this country, or they're only so dimly aware of it, they Mm. just don't know in any sort of detail? I mean, the books I've written before this were very much kind of escapism, and I think maybe the way way this information came to me, seeing it first-hand and hearing from people first-hand what happened to them, once that happened, I just didn't feel comfortable... It would have felt quite explorative if I hadn't handled the situation with respect. And, I mean, you really couldn't glamorise it because there is nothing to glamorise there. It's just grinding horribleness. Um, So with this one, this felt more like an expose. This world is so close to the mainstream and yet we don't really see it. I mean, you know, migrant workers are cleaning our offices and looking after our elderly and working in hospitals and in food production... And they're so close to us, but the world is actually quite insular and self-policing. And nobody really knows that much of what goes on in it. I just wanted to bring that out. And I, once I started looking at it, I realised it was a really great setting for a crime novel because it's, it's quite lawless. And it, I just couldn't let it go. I just had to I just had to write it. And I, I just hope readers find it as interesting as I found it to get that peek into this kind of hidden world. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us for the special International Women's Day podcast celebrating new women's voices from Vintage Books. Do join us again next month for more interviews and discussions with your favourite authors. And don't forget, if you've missed any of our podcasts or would like to listen again, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and at vintage-books.co.uk. See you next month.